I have a vivid memory of witnessing my older brother David playing basketball in the first organized league that we ever played in. So he always played baseball and was quite good at it. And then he tried basketball. And I was nervous for him because I loved basketball. We, we, we both loved basketball. But as the game goes on, he wasn't scoring at all. And I just remember wanting my older brother to score a basket. You can do it, David. He gets the ball. I think it's towards the end of the game. And he dribbles and gets away from everybody else and finds himself wide open under the basket. And he shoots. He makes it. And I'm so proud of my older brother who has finally scored a basketball goal. And my feelings of pride for him were quickly reversed to feelings of horror when I realized he had scored on the wrong goal. In fact, that's why he was so wide open in the first place. The other team wasn't going to guard him. He was going to score for him. You can learn a lot of strategy and plays and teamwork, but when it comes down to it, at the very heart of the game of basketball, there is a central purpose. That is to put the ball through the right hoop. Sometimes we Christians get caught up in strategies and programmings and events and a whole lot else. And we can forget, if we're not careful, that at the core, there is a central purpose to being a Christian. And if we forget this one purpose for everything else, then it's all for nothing. The scripture this morning is no doubt a familiar one to many, if not all of you. In these six verses, we can find Jesus' entire message and the whole of the Old Testament law all wrapped up in its simplest form. If someone who had never heard of Jesus or the Bible or Christianity at all and was asking, what is it really all about to be a Christian? One place you could point them to that would give them a snapshot would be right here in Matthew 22. Hear these words. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This story of the Pharisees and the Sadducees teaming up to trap Jesus is actually the third in a series of trap attempts. The Pharisees go first, and then the Sadducees, and then we get this story of them teaming up together. So to give us some context for this story, we're going to briefly look at these first two attempts to trap Jesus. 
In verse 15, we hear, Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one. For you do not regard people with partiality. They're buttering him up. They're complimenting him. And then they get to the question. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? After asking for and looking at a coin, Jesus holds it up and asks them a question. He asks them whose face and whose title is on the coin, to which they reply, the emperor. And then Jesus says, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And this scene ends with a phrase in verse 22 that simply says, When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. So the second story of a trap attempt on Jesus is very, very similar. After the Pharisees fail in their attempt, we're told that exact same day, the Sadducees make their attempt to trap Jesus. Their question is in reference to a kind of obscure law that was pretty common in ancient cultures, but it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It simply says this, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. And if you think that's weird, you should continue to read on and see what the consequences are if the brother refuses to, to do this. The Sadducees' question is essentially, if this happens, but it happens seven times in the same family to seven different brothers, and the same woman has been married to all seven of them, when the woman dies and they all get to heaven, whose wife will she be? It's a deep question, right? If she's been married to all seven of them, when they get into the afterlife, Whose wife will she be? The Sadducees are not genuine in their interest to the answer to this question. We know this because the Sadducees are a sect of Judaism that does not believe in an afterlife at all. So they have no interest in what Jesus actually has to say. They just are trying to pose a question to which they think there can be no good answer. But Jesus simply answers their question by saying that there is no marriage in heaven and then tells them that they have no idea what they're talking about and to go read their Bibles. And the scene ends with a similar phrase as the first scene. This one says, And when the crowd heard it, they were astounded at his teaching. And so we have two stories. They both have, they have a, lot of, a lot in common with each other. First the Pharisees, then the Sadducees. Each ask him a question to which they believe there is no good answer as an attempt to trap him. They both address Jesus as teacher. 
We're going to come back to that in a moment. And in both stories, after Jesus responds, the people are amazed by his teaching. So you would think, after both of these stories taking place one after another on the same day, you would think they would learn their lesson and say, maybe this idea to trap Jesus, not a great idea. We've been humiliated twice. That's not what they learn from these stories. In fact, now they decide they're just going to dig in and team up together. And that's where we get the story that I read just a moment ago. We're going to look at it verse by verse and kind of dig into some details. So if you have a Bible with you and like to follow along, I encourage you to do that. Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. It will be on the screen, but sometimes it's helpful to see the context of the verses and where they fall with each other. Uh, But let's look at starting in verse 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. They both had tried. They both had failed. They both had been embarrassed. So these rival Jewish sects get together and join forces and formulate a plan. And then they they decide on one person, the spokesperson, and they send him out. doesn't tell us if he's a Pharisee or a Sadducee. In fact, that no longer matters because these two opponents of Jesus are now unified in their fear of him and their desire to trap him. So verse 35 tells us that, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Before moving on, we need to understand this word that's translated for us as lawyer. In one sense, us modern readers have a really good idea of this word. A lawyer is somebody who knows the law, but also knows how to interpret the law in different contexts. Right? You or I, unless we have lawyers present, you or I could read all the laws we want. Or we could even read Kentucky state court cases and try to figure out what's going on. But when a lawyer reads those same things, he or she has a deep understanding of how those laws interact with the context. That's what a lawyer does. This lawyer would fit a similar description, except most likely the law they are trained in is not simply the laws of their current government. This word in this context would most likely mean this lawyer is an expert in the Old Testament law and rabbis' teachings about those laws. And their expertise would help them understand how those laws would interact with them in their own context. So this person was an expert in all of that. How the Old Testament law relates to the here and now. And so this lawyer would fit that description. But he comes forward and asks, Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He isn't sincerely asking as someone who doesn't know something and is seeking to gain knowledge of, from someone else. Because he's an expert. 
He has no interest in what Jesus actually thinks about this. So once again, this is a disingenuous question. And in fact, we see he calls Jesus teacher, just like in the other two stories. In fact, throughout the book of Matthew, there is a distinction between those who refer to Jesus as teacher and those who refer to Jesus as Lord. This isn't necessarily the case in the rest of the New Testament books, but in the Gospel of Matthew, it's an intentional marker to show this person is not sincere in their desire to learn from Jesus. Frederick Bruner is my favorite uh, commentator on the book of Matthew. In his, in his commentary on Matthew, he simply says, Calling Jesus teacher is a telltale sign in Matthew that the questioner is insincere. So this expert in the law comes to Jesus and asks him a question about the law. To you and me, it seems kind of easy to see what Jesus' answer should be. It seems kind of obvious. As modern Christian readers, I hope you and I have some sort of sense that it's our responsibility as Christians to love God and to love people. And that's how this verse is typically summarized. I hope we have some sense in which we know we are called to love God and to love people. But the answer is actually a lot more complicated than that for Jesus. Rabbis in that day consistently taught that all 613 commandments from God found in the Torah, or the law, were all equally important. They were all from God. How could one be the greatest? But this was a debate that was ongoing in Jesus' day. And different rabbis had different theories for trying to combine some of them or how to mesh some of them together to create one overarching commandment. But it was widely debated. There's different suggestions, but no specific answer. So this lawyer does not even entertain the idea that Jesus could have a satisfactory answer to the question. It's meant to be a question without a good answer. Have you all heard those types of questions? Questions that are posed intentionally by somebody who thinks there's no good answer to this? In my introduction to, to Christian philosophy class, uh, one of the questions that's often proposed, and you may have heard this question before, can God create a rock that's so heavy that he cannot lift it? It's meant to be a question to which there is no good answer. If you say yes, then you're saying God's strength is limited. If you say no, you're saying his creative power is limited. If you want to talk more about that question, I'm happy to, to discuss that with you. The purpose of this question is to be kind of like this. A question to which there is no good answer. The lawyer didn't ask if one commandment in the law was the greatest. He asked which one, trying to trap Jesus. If Jesus chooses a single command over the rest, then he's belittling the rest of God's commands. Yet Jesus answers the question in a way that would have utterly shocked 
his listeners. Jesus also did this in the desert temptations where he quotes scripture, as well as uh, when he's asked about eternal life by the rich young ruler. Jesus responds to this question by quoting scripture. In fact, he quotes two scriptures in his response. First, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. We read this a little bit earlier in the service, and uh, we're going to dive into it just a little bit. But here's Jesus' quote of the verse. He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Deuteronomy 6.4 is known as the Shema, which is simply an English version of the first word that means hear. It means, hey, listen up. Hey, pay attention. Hear. This verse played a really important role in the Jewish faith in that day. In fact, devout Jews would pray this verse every morning when they got up and every night when they went to bed. So much could be said about this specific verse, but we're going to just point out a few things. First, notice the phrase, the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God. It doesn't simply say, you shall love God. It's more personal than that. This is a God who has saved his people out of Egypt and walked with them through the wilderness. They are not just told to love some idea of a higher power or love some concept of God. It's a specific God that they know, that they've experienced. It's a personal God. They are told to love the Lord, your God. And now let's explore these three ways the verse tells its hearers to love God. Heart, soul, and mind. And this Deuteronomy verse appears in slightly different versions in the different Gospels. Uh, We're going to stick with these three because we're focusing primarily on Matthew's telling of this story. Heart, soul, and mind. But not just with parts of each. Each word has attached to it another word, all. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. All three of these words uh, are words that mean something similar, that are about the, the center of a person, of what makes up a human, a person. There's overlap in their meaning, but there's slight nuances. So we're going to look at each of these words, heart, soul, and mind. If you and I were to hear the phrase that you love something with all your heart, perhaps some of you children have said that to some mothers today. We tend to think of the the emotional side of love. The warm, affectionate, hallmark movie, all up in your feelings type of love. Uh, But actually, this word here in Jesus' time meant something like the character of a person. The place where your true intentions exist and where decisions are made. 
Really, we would call this part of the person, part of the mind. A few weeks ago in a sermon about doubt, I said that belief is not simply a choice. While I still believe that to be true, I would like to also say that it seems as if Jesus is saying, the way he's talking about loving God, that the love of God can be a choice. That we can choose to love God. And the place that happens is what Jesus here calls the heart. The soul. This is the innermost part of a human. The Greek word used here is familiar when we say it out loud. It's psyche. It's the word that's best used to describe the inner identity of who you are. And then the mind. This is the place of understanding, of thinking. Now, strangely enough, uh, I've heard this, phrase, this, this scripture paraphrased quite a bit with the phrase, love God, love others, or love God, love people. You all heard that? It's an easy way to boil it all down into two, uh, to, to a little catchphrase. Love God, love people. It makes a good bumper sticker. I think it's a good paraphrase of this verse. But there's something a little ironic about the way I've heard people use it. See, I've heard people in the midst of deep theological conversations or when some sort of question about God is posed by somebody, I've heard people respond, I don't know. I'm not a theologian. I'm just called to love God and love people. The only problem with that is Jesus ex explicitly says the greatest commandment involves loving God with your mind. So we can't have the cop-out to just say, I'll just love God and love people and not really think about all that deep theology stuff. So yes, if you want to love God the way Jesus says, you are indeed a theologian. There's no way out. If you want to love God the way Jesus calls us to love God, we have to do it with our minds. Jesus then wraps up this quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6 by saying, this is the greatest and first commandment. And now if if he stopped there, it seems like well, he's answered the question. The question was for a commandment, one commandment. But he's not done. Jesus goes on. In an unprecedented move, Jesus now fuses this verse with Deuteronomy 6 with another verse from Leviticus chapter 18. When he says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was not asked for two answers. The question was for a singular command, but now he's fused together these two commands. He's tying together the love of God and the love of people in a way that cannot be broken. I mentioned Frederick Bruner's commentary on the book of Matthew a few moments ago. Uh, in this section, he actually has a, a parenthetical story 
If you've ever tried to read a Bible commentary, there's not a lot of stories. And so you're trudging along, and then all of a sudden there's a personal story. There's a, a difference in tone. Here's what Bruner says. He was in the mission field with his wife. And the people they were serving asks, they ask him, what's the main responsibility of the church? You're here in our country. What's the main purpose? What's the main responsibility of your church here in our community? And Frederick Bruner's response was gospel proclamation. To proclaim the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. But his wife answered at the same time as he did. And she said, social responsibility. To care for people. They later realized that in their answering at the same time, they were reflecting a deeper reality. About the fusion between loving God and loving your neighbor that cannot be torn apart. The responsibility of the church for the spiritual and the social cannot properly exist without each other. The truth is, we see churches attempt this all the time. There are churches on both extremes. Churches that ignore the cry of the needy and solely focus on their own worship of God or their own study of God. There's also plenty of churches on the other side that ignore the pursuit of God and focus completely on being social justice advocates. Both of these approaches fall short because they need each other. Jesus finishes his astounding answer to the Pharisees and the Sadducees through this lawyer by saying, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus suggests here an image of all the Torah dangling from two pegs. Just hanging there from these two commandments. And everything else is dependent on them. Without them, they'll fall and crash to the ground. Jesus was asked about the law, but notice that he adds something to the question. He says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Not just the Torah, but the rest of the Old Testament. All of it is dependent on loving God heart, soul, and mind, and on loving others. After examining this question and Jesus' amazing answer to it, we need to ask ourselves a question. Does this type of love, does it describe me? Can it be said of me that I love God with my all? Can it be said of me that I love other people as I love myself? Can it be said of you? Can it be said of us as a church community? 
Is every aspect of our life together as a community devoted to loving God and loving others? Those of you in ministry leadership positions, reflect on your areas. Is there anything that exists that's outside of those two commandments? Loving God with heart, mind, and soul and loving our neighbors? Pat mentioned in her prayer or before her prayer, uh, she used the word hibernation. In the first service, I said that very word. I said, it feels like we're bears coming out of hibernation. And we're all emerging from our caves and looking for daylight and looking for sustenance, looking for others, seeking community. As we resume some of these ministries of the church, as we come out of this hibernation together, I encourage us all to make sure everything we bring back or anything we start new centers on what Jesus explicitly says is the greatest commandment in all of Scripture. This double command that cannot be broken apart. To love God with everything we are and to love people as we love ourselves. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this story in Scripture that teaches us, that reminds us, and that urges us on. Remind us to love you with every part of who we are. With our minds, with our hearts, with our souls, with our very beings. And Lord, Remind us to love other people. Each and every person we come in contact with. And help us to love even those who at times are unlovely. And God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who embodied this love for us. We are only able to love in this way because we were first loved by you. So we pray that your spirit will fill us and spur us on in love. In Jesus' name, amen.